Hi guys, in this episode I'm speaking to Men Overseas. We're covering loads of different topics, including his one-year sabbatical, but mainly dive into real estate and his expertise around it, which have a very interesting discussion on how pretty much everybody can apply this. I certainly found it very useful myself, learned a lot from him, so yeah, anyway. Sit back, relax, and join the show, and hope you will get as much value as I did. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta, and Matthias. Hello, everybody. Welcome back again to another podcast episode of the Financial Independence Europe podcast. Today, I've got Brad with me from the men overseas. Hey, Brad. Hey, Alvar. How are you? Very great and very awesome to have yourself. So, Brad, maybe just to get started so the audience can get to know you, can you just give us a quick elevated pitch of who you are about, your FI journey, and just give people an idea of who is Brad? Sure. My name is Brad D'Antonio. My online moniker is Man Overseas. I'm from the Deep South. I became interested in the Deep South of the United States, I should probably clarify, I became interested in financial independence in 2003 when someone handed me a cassette tape of Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N, and Jim Rohn defined financial independence as the ability to live from the income of your own personal resources. And so I wrote that on a little sticky note, a little yellow sticky note, and I kept it at my desk until the day I retired at age 34. Um, Nice one. And but so one thing I pretty much, just, uh, what came straight from your blog, you know, you've obviously, you are financially independent. How did you do it? I worked a full commission sales job. It was only commission from age 23 to 27. And when I was 27, I transitioned into a job that had salary plus commission. And from that day forward, this was 2007. I decided that I was going to invest every commission dollar I would ever make so I could live on a portion of my salary in this new job I had at age 27. And so to be, to be clear for your listeners, what I was doing from age 23 to 27 was selling real estate. And you need a real estate license in order to sell real estate. I retained my real estate license once I got that new job at age 27. And so the benefits of having a real estate license as you get older is that your peers tend to get older. They tend to make more money as they get older. And a lot of times they are by that time selling their first house, which we call a starter home in the U.S., and buying their second home. So they're moving up in house. And when they do that, you get two ends of the deal. You get the sell side and then the buy. You get a commission on the buy side. So. I'm a sort of a self-development junkie and believe that your income won't far exceed your self-development, which is another idea I got from Jim Rohn. And so I was able to save and invest a large portion of my income in real estate because I was familiar with real estate. And since I worked for a technology company, I also took some chances on technology stocks. And then by the time I was 34, about seven years later, I decided that I was going to take a sabbatical and travel the world. And it's the best decision that I've ever made. That one-year sabbatical has turned into full-time early retirement. And I've been traveling the world and living in 
Airbnbs for 30 days at a time in different parts of the world, different countries. And it's, it's been awesome until COVID. And now we're in Mexico living for the meantime. Still not about saying living in Mexico, I would say. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> One thing I would try to be curious about. So obviously, you know, you've had your career, you've saved everything up. At 34, you became financially independent and you took this full year sabbatical. Many people in the FI community, they're like, okay, let's get to FI as quickly as possible. I'm done with the rat race. I, you know, I just want to do nothing. Compared to the life you had while working against the life you had as a sabbatical, like what kind of lessons did you draw out of that? And also, first of all, kind of like, where did you roughly go? Because I think there's also one word asking, where did you go traveling? Well, you, you make a great point in that the, the person with the fire inside and the discipline required to retire extremely early is going to have a tough time turning it off, so to speak. So the, the idea of sipping margaritas on a hammock on the beach every day is, is awesome. But after nine or 10 days, you're going you're gonna to be looking for something to do. So you have to keep yourself occupied in early retirement. And so it just means that it gives you an opportunity to do more fulfilling work. You don't have to work for money. You choose what it is that you want to do. And a lot of times, just as a function of doing what you love, you get good at it and then you start to make money. So to answer your question about where I, where I went when I, when I retired, I started in Great Britain. So I flew into London and then I went up to Scotland in Edinburgh, which I learned how to say Edinburgh when, when I got there. I, Americans don't refer to it that way. And then I went up to the Highlands, saw the Loch Ness, which is something I remember reading about in third grade. I, I, I posted on Facebook f- uh, fake pictures of the Loch Ness monster, <laughs> and uh, many people thought it was real. It was great. And then drove back down to Edinburgh and flew over to the Netherlands, which I was surprised at how tall Dutchmen were, which I believe the Dutch are the tallest people in the world. Yep. So I, I had to get out of there quickly because I felt small. <laughs> and I flew to Germany to see a good buddy of mine who lives in Nuremberg. And when I visited him, he was like, how are you able to afford this travel around the world for a whole year? And I said, well, I've been investing in real estate since I was 23. So my first year out of college, I saved up a 10% down payment for a little townhome. And I got a, a roommate to pay for half the mortgage, at least half the mortgage. And we didn't have a name for it at that time. But podcasts like Bigger Pockets refer to that as house hacking. So I was house hacking before I knew what it was and building equity in the home. And then by my 26th birthday, that home was paid for. Now, it was only an $80,000 home. So I had to pay off $72,000 in four or five years. But then that inspired me to get the next property and the next and the next to where eventually my, my income from my rental properties far exceeded my monthly expenses. And so that's what enabled me to travel the world for a year. And that has since become full-time retirement because if you can do it for a year based on rental income from real estate, you can, you can pretty much do it the rest of your life if you want to. Nice one. And actually your rental units, are they all managed or do you still manage them yourself? It's a great question. 
I believe if this was 25 years ago, I would, ma- I would have someone manage them for me. But because of the ease with which we can communicate with contractors, because you know, I don't even have to talk to them. I can text two different contractors, ask them to go out to the house and take a look at something or bid on something. If it's vacant, I just have a lockbox on the door so that they can get in and out. Or if the tenant is there, I'll just say, hey, are you going to be there between two and four o'clock tomorrow? And we just figure out a time that they're going to be there. So that's number one. Number two is you can submit payments to the contractor online, right? It's not like you have to meet them or write them a check the way it used to be. And that goes for rent payments too. They just deposit them into my bank account every month. I don't have to go around collecting rent. So there's so many things that can be done remotely nowadays, thanks to the advent of the wonderful technologies that we have. I can give you another quick example. As we speak, I have someone out at a house that was just vacated recently who is a photographer and they're charging me $100 and it's $99 plus tax to go out to the house, take pictures for me, and they're going to send them to me in the format that can be uploaded to what we call the multiple listing service so that I can market it for rent. But I've had a cleaning lady in there. I've had the refrigerator delivery guy in there. So because I have a lockbox on the door. So, so much of this could be done remotely nowadays. It's landlording has become a lot easier thanks to technology. I think that's one. I mean, many people either use stocks or real estate as a driver to financial independence, but kind of the struggle with, okay, I either want to go traveling or somewhere else or combine the two when I'm five, but I've got all these properties here and hiring um, an agency to do it, they're going to take a 20% cut. So the fact that you managed to do it yourself, like how many hours would you say you spent on this like on a weekly basis? Is it just a couple? I don't think it adds up to a full hour on a weekly basis. If I had to average it out, it's probably 30 to 45 minutes a week. So what is that, three hours a month? And you got five units. Five units, yes. Wow. Yeah, and part of that is the screening that you do up front. So the reason you want to have a Zoom call with them is so that you can get a better sense of them and you're going to go over their application with them and do a criminal background check, do a credit score. And by the way, they pay for all that. So technology, man, it's it's awesome. But I always say if you do the grunt work up front, it can save you a lot of headaches later. The most important part of being a landlord is screening for high quality tenants and you want to price it well and price it where you, you'll get competing offers so that it you know, gets off the market quickly because every 30 days that it's not leased is costing you several hundred dollars, if not a thousand dollars, depending on whether you have it paid off or not. So anyway, you're asking some great questions. Cool. And um, I mean, obviously, you know, this is the way it works in the US, but the same principles will apply in every single other country in terms of background checks. It might have a different name or a different cost, but you still have to follow the same process to get it done. And it actually makes for a great kind of like question for myself at the same time. So I'm about to buy my first property and talking about house hacking, very much what me and my partner have in mind is we've got something in the UK we call lodgers. Effectively, it's just getting a roommate. But the nice thing is they have like, imagine you've got a normal tenancy agreement with all the rights and blobs linked to that. Lodgers have far less rights, which makes it far uh, easier to either get them out or just simply exchange students who come for six months, six months contract, job done. 
what we have in mind is getting a property, two bedrooms, and getting two well tenants or lodgers in there and make them pay the mortgage in that case. The way we are looking at numbers right now, we're probably looking at a 500 monthly payment, but being able to get 1,200 monthly cash flow out of these lodgers, make them actually pay the mortgage at a bit after all expenses and repairs of a bit left monthly, now just overflow and combine these two. But the funny thing is you can do this once in most European countries because your primary residence when you're a live-in landlord is very tax advantaged. This applies to most countries. But the moment you go second, third, fourth property, the taxes you're paying on it just go through the roof and it's almost equation. We spoke about this before our call, but the returns you're making on your money, four or 5%, pretty normal. Making, you know, as many people quote, a 1% rule in the US would be very difficult unless you use Airbnb or you're in a very cheap area. Many governments encourage homeownership. And so I, I strongly encourage people to take advantage of the benefits of the taxes and the depreciation and just buy for cash flow. And I call appreciation land yap, which just means bonus in French. So yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you're taking advantage of it. My German friend, when I visited him, he was inspired by what I was doing. He started investing and he's seen incredible appreciation. Like he started buying five years ago and most of his properties that he's acquired have appreciated about 60 to 70%. So he bought them for about 100 and they're worth about 160, 170. But the rents are very low. He's only getting 4 to 5%. But the appreciation is incredible. So he's doing kind of the opposite of what I do in the States, which is buy for cash flow and tax benefits and just let the appreciation come as a byproduct of, of doing what I just said. So yeah, it's different around the world. It's important to research the benefits and costs, but but I love to hear that you're you're getting started. And if if it becomes too cumbersome and and the taxation is a disincentive, well then maybe you switch to Vanguard VTSAX and different index funds that you can invest in. Exactly. I also feel combining the two doesn't hurt, as in you can still buy your primary residence, get in there um, and rent a portion of it out, or you know I should call them in the US get a duplex buy the property in the right way, but at the same time, keep investing in Vanguard because each country has a way where you can get a brokerage account, throw cash into Vanguard, keep rinse, repeat every single month. Because we spoke about this also earlier before our call, but like as drivers to get to financial independence, like if I would ask you, which one is more powerful, real estate or just equities, what would you go for if you had to pick one of the two? I think real estate should be the foundation because once your income from real estate investments exceeds your expenses. You are effectively retired forever. If you're also investing in equities, you can see that fluctuate wildly. I did in March. You know, March 23rd was the bottom of the market. I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in wealth, but it didn't matter to me. I didn't need to touch it because I still had the real estate investments that were the primary vehicle through which I was able to retire early. So I strongly, strongly encourage people to use real estate as the primary mode of achieving financial independence. And then we're talking mainly about keeps value, keeps cash flow. You can touch it. It's physical. I should also say my roommate that I had when I first house hacked, he was inspired by what I was able to do when he was paying me rent. 
He was so inspired that he's been investing in real estate for about nine or 10 years, and he is killing it. He's got way more real estate than I have. I just wanted to interject with that. Well, one thing I would also say at the same time, um, getting the same cash flow done through equities, you're going to struggle unless you throw a crazy leverage on your investments, which would be extremely risky. Yes, stocks are risky. Real estate is less risky. At the same time, if I would want to get, you know, if I invest 100K in equities, now uh, getting a 4K uh, yearly uh, cash flow out of that or go for dividend stocks, some dividend ETF, get five or six, it is doable. But it does come, well, first, you need to save up 100K to actually get it done. And secondly, the risks that come with that. Now, would it be fair to say if I compare it against real estate, where would I say with a 20, 30K down payment, I could get a property that cash flows to 300 a month um, without any issues, positive cash flow, and then we're ignoring the appreciation game. Yes, and stocks could go sideways for 10 years. You could have a lost decade. Look what happened to Japan. It's been 30 years where they've had no increase in the value of their equities on average. It's incredible. That sort of thing can happen. The market can stagnate. So get the cash flow from real estate if you can. At least own one property. Second, Diversify your income streams. Yep, seven streams of income, right? Average millionaire. I would definitely also argue in Europe, the ETFs are massively popular. Everybody is Vanguard, Vanguard. If you go to the five forums, everybody is just like, okay, throw everything you've got into an ETF, job done. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's real estate is popular, but less, I think, than in the States, obviously because of lower returns compared to Europe. But at the same time, I think it's actually very risky to throw everything you've got just into stocks and hoping, hey, We'll be fine. Vanguard will keep running. I mean, it'll keep running, but throwing everything you've got into one component of a portfolio and leaving it that, I think that on itself is risky. And you should probably even go beyond just real estate and ETFs. Because if you think about it, if you either buy a business, start a web shop, create several components of a portfolio and base your financial independence on that, I would sleep a lot better having debt against having all my cash in stock market or just having property market. Because many people, we had one guy who invested a lot in Poland. That was this one city where he had started all his Airbnbs. And you know, he had three, four amazingly cash-flowing Airbnbs, but they were all in one city. If that city either goes down or Airbnb, you know, there's some legislation that gets thrown into that, he's done. He's no longer five. Yeah, he might be five for a few years while it keeps running, but that on itself is tricky too. That's a good point. New York City has struggled with Airbnb. And Uber is fighting with California currently, Uber and Lyft. So yes, once the government gets involved, you don't know what's going to happen in terms of regulation. We've seen a lot of Airbnb owners get screwed. If they have a bunch of mortgages on properties and, and their Airbnb goes vacant due to a worldwide pandemic, they're stuck holding the bag. You also made a great point about throwing money into the stock market, like a lot of money. I had a tendency to throw a lot of money at real estate to pay them off. And there's no way I would have had that same aggressive stance if it were equities that I was throwing that money at. So working in sales, you have a commission, or I'm sorry, you have a salary plus commission. Sometimes your commission checks can be pretty large if you close a big deal. So I was able to take that big chunk of money and apply it toward paying down the, the mortgage of a property. Well, 
I don't think that I would have been so aggressive and throwing all that money into the market. It just it just feels risky, even though it may not be over the next 10 or 20 years. It's tough to make that same decision, throwing it into equities, whereas you know that there's a psychological benefit to paying off your house. You never regret paying off a house. So it's just a little easier to do. You can see the balance going down. So if you buy a house for 100000 and you finance 80000 as you throw three, five, eight thousand dollars at the balance, it's fun to, to watch it go down and down and down until it's finally paid off. And then, as Dave Ramsey likes to say, the grass feels a little different under your feet when once it's paid off. So um, I, I strongly encourage paying them off, not only for the psychological benefit, but you just never regret doing it. And it's so fun to see all that cash to the what I call to the good pop. It's all positive. It's it's wonderful. I agree. At the same time, I think I can also argue, well, you pay off all, you know, you're mortgage-free, got paid everything off, but isn't that money way better used in other investments where it cash flows far more? And, you know, the 2% you're saving on your mortgage against the seven or eight you could make in other investments, the six difference between the two of that, that's effectively, you know, money you throw away opportunity cost too. Absolutely. Yes, and I'm aware of that. I wrote an article called Driving a Porsche in Your 30s, where I talked about having $80,000 cash liquid sitting in, a, in a, sa- a savings account. And I was pumping gas, and I saw an email that came that said a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,300, 1,400-square-foot house was on the market, completely matched my criteria for a rental property that I was trying to get. And so instead of buying this Porsche that I had dreamed about since I was a kid, I took the money and purchased a house instead. And this was in 2010. Well, since I purchased that house in cash for $80,000, it has brought to me $108,000 in rent. That's net rent. Actually, this article was written a year ago, so it's, it's probably $12,000 more. So let's say $120,000 in rent. The house is worth about $155,000. So that's $75,000 more in in equity, in wealth gain. So that's a total, that's $195,000 added to my wealth because of the decision to buy that house rather than the Porsche. You know how much that Porsche Porsche is worth today? $9,000, nine. So we're talking about almost a $200,000 decision right there. And I don't regret paying cash for that house. Yeah, I could, I could have, I could be 200 and my, my wealth could have increased 245,000 instead of 200,000, but I don't think like that. I mean, you can't, you have hindsight bias and you're wasting your time living in regret. So one of my favorite quotes in the world is a Catherine Mansfield quote where she says, regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only for wallowing in. And and that's so true. So I don't think 15 years from now, when I'm worth $5.2 million, that I'm going to say, oh, no, I could have been worth $5.76 million if I had just done this instead of this. These houses are paid off, and I love it. It it provides enough income to travel the world. So you make a great point. I just don't don't, uh, reflect on that very often. Hey, fair enough. And it works. And I think if we kind of go back for a step, 
and think about people either getting started or being in my semi-position. You know, you're kind of on the way, but you're not there yet. Getting actual leads of financial independence without starting a business and getting some massive cash flow going and doing it on your own. What options have you got? You can keep working your job for 30 years and saving, you know, 30, 40K a year, throwing it into ETFs and leaving it at that. You only have so many tools available to yourself to get it done. Getting a house and paying 20, 30K down is, I, no, I would absolutely agree, one of the first steps to, well, yeah, I think, I think we can say supercharge uh, the cash flow bits of FI. And this is absolutely not planned, but I think the discussion we get going like this really works. So we'll convert this episode a little bit because if we're just thinking, you know, say, because many, I'm sure it's the same in the US, but there are tens of thousands of people around Europe have joined the FI movement. You know, if just actually just all the forums, tens of thousands, probably a couple hundred thousand. And many of them like, you know, they're getting started and they just keep hearing this message spread around. Okay, I have to buy ETFs and save everything and be crazy frugal and got a budget. And if I just do that for 30 years or for 10 years, I'm done. But you know, it can be that easy, but there are different ways of getting the same done. If somebody is listening to this and like they actually, they love this real estate idea and from the house hacking bit, how would you recommend them to kind of get started when they're looking at their first property? Because these numbers, they work in every country, like this, the mechanisms. They want to start with house hacking. Where should they really look at when they look at a property? Buy something in a decent school district so that it will appeal to many people as a rental. I would look for something that is roughly six to 15 years old. I would look for a three-bedroom, two-bath. So just to clarify, that's, that's a house, right? In that case, when you say a three-bedroom, two-bath, that would be a house. Sorry. Yeah. In, in the United States, we have a lot of single-family homes, especially where I live in Houston, Texas, or that's where all my properties are. I'm not currently living there. But yeah, we have specific criteria that we target in areas, and it's because they're in a good school district. They're in the price range that yields the most, that yields the highest percentage. So the sweet spot is sort of around 120 to 180,000 US dollars, 120 to 180,000. So we're not focused on aesthetics, we're focused on return. You could buy a $250,000 house, but it'll only rent for about $1,800 a month. Whereas if you buy in the 120 to 180 range, those houses will abide by the 1% rule that you alluded to earlier, where you're getting about 1% in gross income, 1% of the value of the home. So if you buy for 150,000, you can usually rent them for about 1,500 a month. Getting the same uh, thing done in Europe can be quite tricky. What's very common here is just to buy up a house, divide all the rooms and rent each room out for like four or 500 each to either young professionals or students. That's kind of the equivalent people do here, but flats are very, very common here. And kind of like the 180 to 200K mark you're quoting, that's, I would say, most major cities taking Edinburgh, my own town here as an example, they're very common. Three bedroom, you're going to struggle, but a two bedroom uh, with a big living room, definitely possible for 200K. In many European cities, you'll get the same done, but the easiest kind of like tenants to get would really be other young professionals or students. If you would want to, um, well, at least live either break even or with minor positive cash flow, getting yourself a 200k place at a six seven hundred uh, mortgage a month, plus you know throw another two three hundred repairs on top a year, 
let's be conservative or a year, a month to be on the conservative side. It's quite possible to rent out the living room plus a bedroom and live in one themselves and you can effectively live for free. But getting that 1% rule, that's, that's the, you know, the amazing bit of the US. Here, without Airbnb, if anybody knows how to get it done without Airbnb, please tell me, but I've not come across it. Well, one of the beautiful things about Airbnb nowadays too is that you can put a lockbox on it, get a cleaning person in there. You're charging the tenant the, the cleaning fee and you're letting the tenant self-check in. So there's not that much work involved. So Airbnb can be a great way to get higher returns. But what you're saying is true. In Europe, it's a little bit different. So three bedroom, two bath, one story homes is kind of the sweet spot in the areas where I invest. It may be different in Europe. And one thing I was also thinking about, because, you know, we've covered Airbnb bit quite a bit. The Airbnb bit quite a bit cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, if you think about it, like we all go on holiday. It wouldn't be that crazy difficult to put a lockbox on a home and, you know, the month we're away by default ourselves on holiday, rent your place out on Airbnb. A friend of mine recently in the Netherlands, they went on holiday. They, uh, even during COVID, they managed to rent out uh, their entire home for like 1,200 euro or so for 10 days. And I'm thinking, wait, they paid their entire holiday based on that. And even during COVID, no issues renting it out. So if you think about that, now, it would be relatively easy, I think, for most of us. Yeah, of course, you have, you've got to do the cleaning and get those things. But just going through that would easily add a couple thousand a year to the cash flow of your property, even when you're not there. I think a lot of geo-arbitrage information is becoming available nowadays. The apps are being developed and blogs. And I can give you a small example. My wife and I come to Mexico to get dental work done because it's about... $80 here to get what dental work in the States would cost about $1,200. It's nuts. So we come here, save $1,120 US dollars, and that pays for us to have a nice stay at an Airbnb and pay for nice meals out. And yeah, it's just incredible. There's so many advantages to what technology enables us to do and that we can live and work from anywhere and, and visit Thailand. And if you need some sort of medical treatment or something, you can get it at nice hospitals in Thailand and just pay out of pocket. And it's much cheaper than what you would pay in the United States. Now, I know that's probably a US specific thing because you guys have nationalized healthcare, right? Up to a certain extent, many countries, you're definitely paying out of pocket for a dentist Uh, or you pay a small co-payment on top of medication yourself. I mean, because even I, I wasn't uh, Thailand is kind of the Asian equivalent of Mexico for you guys. Um, we and my girlfriend, while we were in Thailand, we did dental treatment in Thailand. Well, because it was 50 US just to get it done there. And for the same wow. cleaning bits, uh, you probably have paid 150, 200 ish back home in the Netherlands, which everybody always, uh, because we were actually planning to have kind of a bit of a discussion between US and Europe and the five differences. But I think everybody in the US always thinks, hey, you know, healthcare is amazing in Europe and it's cheap. You pay nothing for it except your high taxes. But now you're definitely paying for it too. Um, if I can throw in a couple examples, I right now pay in the UK, uh, we call something national insurance tax. It's 12% of my salary a month. It's not all exactly meant for the healthcare, but a good chunk of it is. Back in the Netherlands, I was paying, I say, a good 100, 120 a month for my healthcare, plus another 
385, 400-ish in, we call it an own risk, but effectively uh, d- deductible, I think, would be the American ver- uh, word of that. You know, if your health goes first initially yourself, in Germany, depending on your income, as a self-employed person, you can easily pay 300 a month. And thinking about those amounts, if I compare them to the US, to the US, it will probably not be as expensive, but how does that sound to you? Expensive. <laughs> Yeah, I was paying about $550 a month as soon as I quote unquote retired in 2015. And I did that for a few years and never used it and then realized, you know what, I'm going to get my medical treatments done outside of the country and dental work especially. So it's, it's better to pay out of pocket and get a vacation at the same time. And it's one of those things, if you get a fire, you're not going to get around it no matter where you're from the healthcare bits and having to get very expensive travel insurance to get the same done also is not going to save you from it. Actually, one thing I keep hearing in your story are kind of like geo arbitrage and real estate. Would you consider those like the most powerful tools in your kit in getting to fire, maintaining fire and getting the most value out of it? Well, just the idea that it's so clear that once your income from your rental properties exceeds your expenses, you are effectively retired. So if you're spending 4,000 pounds or 4,000 US dollars a month and you, you're disciplined enough to budget over time so that you're maximizing your savings and investments, once you get to that point where your, your expenses are exceeded, it's like, hmm, do I want to be doing this job or could I be doing something in Thailand? It's just, it's, it's just so clear with real estate and the fact that it's made so easy by technology where I always say the most important component of real estate investing and being a landlord is tenant screening. So you have to be able to vet people well. And so I used to meet them at Starbucks, buy them a coffee and interview them as if I'm interviewing them for a job because this is my lifeblood, right? These are the properties that support me. So I treat them like my babies. (laughs) I love these properties. So I need to have someone in there who's going to take care of them well. Well, now with everything being by Zoom, it's almost the same thing, right? I've gotten a sense of you. I've been on the phone on a Zoom call with you for 45 minutes. I like you enough to where I would love to have you in one of my properties. So technology enables that. And it just cuts out a lot of the fat and enables us to be super efficient. Vanguard, you've mentioned many times, Vanguard has helped the fire movement as much as anything that's been created in my mind, because back when Our parents were coming out of school and they wanted to invest. If they wanted to buy stock, they had to call their stockbroker. And the fee to buy Apple stock might have been $70 for the trade. Well, nowadays, can you not only buy stocks at no charge at all, thanks to competitive free markets, but you can automatically invest in Vanguard. You can send money from your account automatically to Vanguard and tell it automatically to purchase a Vanguard total stock market index, ticker symbol, ticker symbol VTSAX. So it's so easy. It's, it's hands off. There's no discipline required. You set it and forget it. So it makes so much of personal finance easy. Vanguard is a godsend. Heck yeah. So to say if we combine them all, because what you effectively did, you got your properties, you've moved overseas, the money you've got is going way further. You're supercharging the availability of your cash through real estate. And then while you spend it overseas, you're getting far more value out of it. And 
think that's really the cool part. The moment you get into that positive cash flow zone, bit, you've got that option. You can move wherever you want. And uh, I think for many Europeans, it's kind of like thinking like that, sometimes thinking that big is difficult because having either very safe employment or very safe retirement and having your healthcare available to you, it just makes it so easy to kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't need it. I'm good. I'm protected. But it does mean if you want that, you're locked up in the system for 40, 50 years. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's the deal. You either you work your 40 years and then you get your nice cushy retirement. But otherwise, you know, you got to stick to the system. Otherwise, you're not getting the benefits. And we are trying to create an alternative system, and, but we want even more benefits and we want them quicker and better. The Forgot- easiest thing in the world is to be like everybody else. If you want an average life, do what the average person is doing. But if you want to make a few sacrifices now so that you can live the rest of your life in any way that you choose, never set an alarm clock again. My wife is pregnant. She's due in January. She was telling me yesterday that what she loves about this pregnancy, and this is her first one, but what she loves is that she can take a nap at any time. Anytime she feels like taking a nap, she can do that. Well, I've created that. She's a lot younger than me, so she wasn't far removed from university when we retired and started tra- she started traveling with me a few years ago. But well, we married a few years ago, 2018. But the fact that I can provide that for her supreme comfort to where she doesn't have to be on her feet all day, she doesn't have to worry about a boss breathing down her neck or turning in TPS reports at the end of the week. Any stress of returning emails and phone calls and dealing with office politics, none of that strain is on her. And it's because of the 12 years of effort and discipline that I was able to have in order to achieve financial independence to where I can provide a lifestyle where she never has to set an alarm clock and she can just do whatever she wants to do to feel optimal and make this as pleasant a pregnancy as possible. That makes me feel so good knowing that fire has provided that for her and us. I think so many people would wish that. And obviously, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but it definitely helps getting a life more comfortable and easier. Yeah, it's like Zig Ziglar says, Money isn't everything, but in terms of needing it to live, it's reasonably close to oxygen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, money is, is a tool and it can eliminate a lot of your money problems, which eliminates a lot of your stress. But you're right. If you are not happy now, you're not going to be happy when you get what you want. So if you're striving toward financial independence because you think it's going to make you happy and free, you get acclimated to your lifestyle pretty pretty quickly. So I'm still engaging in many of the same practices I did before I achieved FIRE, like a gratitude practice, journaling, I'm prayerful, exercise every day. All of these sort of things that made me a happy person before, I think are enhanced because I have more time to do those things, building relationships. I have more time to focus on relationships, which is really important to me. I spend more time with my parents now. Uh, I speak with my best friends in the middle of the day on a Tuesday. I wouldn't do that when I was working. I had two jobs. I had big goals and dreams, and there was no way. I didn't even have time to have lunch with my best friends. 
Because if I was having lunch with a best friend, it was taking away, it was opportunity cost where I could have been having lunch with a client that might help me to close a half a million dollar deal, which might pay me a $20,000 commission. So, uh, Brethren, I think the main lesson I'm drawing from your story is really, okay, you got it done through pretty much the most efficient ways you can get it done um, in a very short span of time. But, and right now you're picking the rewards out that you can live the life, but still reflect on how you got there. You keep a lot of the habits you had back then, and probably there is no escaping and sometimes checking the prices, comparing things, and having a crazy expensive restaurant and like, ah, shit, should we really do that? Those habits escaping from that will never happen. You're right, because I just posted in my Instagram stories yesterday, my wife arguing with a taxi driver who once he saw a gringo tried to charge us New York City prices to go five miles. And my, my wife was like, there's mucho dinero. We're not, we're not paying that much. So we're still conscious of it. Yeah, because we have to live within a certain budget. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves back at work. So yeah, the, the discipline that you had when you were working so that you could maximize your savings and investments, it, you carry it forward into retirement because otherwise, like I said, you'll be back at work. So you have to... You can't spend all your money. You can't start spending $10,000 a month in retirement. It needs to look more like $3,000 to $5,000. And it has, you have to maintain that level because you don't want to have to set an alarm clock ever again. Heck no. And I think that makes for kind of like an amazing note to slowly finish up the episode. So Brett, to just quickly ask if anybody wants to learn more about you, your story, how can they find you? Thank you, Alvar. You can Google me. Brad D'Antonio is my name. That's B-R-A-D, last name D-A-N-T-O-N-I-O. My online moniker is Man Overseas. My blog is manoverseas.com. Podcast is Man Overseas Podcast. It can be found anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, you name it. And my Instagram and Twitter is at man underscore overseas. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on and see you next time. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Hey, Matthias, do you think there are not enough financial independence Facebook groups yet? Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. Gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddit, in Facebook groups, the Five Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is, in the end, the main reason why we started the whole podcast project to talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions, and like hopefully all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So yeah, just type in FI Europe podcast. See you in the group. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing to your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. 
Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.